Hello and welcome to this talk from Hersham Baptist Church. My name's Phil, I'm the pastor of the church here. We're here to provide good Christian resources to help us all to grow to be courageous in mission, Bible-saturated, spirit-dependent and loving of others. If this is your first time here, then please hit like and subscribe below to stay in touch. We're going to be hearing from God's word in a moment. If any of the issues that come up in this talk touch you or you would like to pray for any reason or talk to someone for any reason, please do get in contact with us through the links in the show notes below and we would be happy to get back to you. We're going to pray and open the Bible together now. First of all, let's pray. Holy Spirit, we pray that you would come, that you would move in this time, that you would open the word to us, help us to see what you have in it. Lord, if there's anything I'm saying that's not from you, we just pray that it would fall to the ground and we forget it. But Lord, the, the word that you're speaking to us would live in us and do your work in us now. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we've been looking at the book of Daniel. It's a book in the Old Testament. That's in the uh, books of the Bible that were written before Jesus came. And it tells the story of four teenagers who were forced out of their homes when Israel was invaded by Babylon, the kingdom of Babylon, uh, which was located in what's present day Iraq and the area around there. We saw how they were taken from their homes and taken from the lives they'd expected, taken from their families and and transported uh, hundreds of miles away. They were given new names and, and forced to serve the king of Babylon. We saw how God protected them, how he prospered them and how he made them a blessing to the others around them. He gave them both natural gifts and success and supernatural gifts and success so that they could bless even the wicked king Nebuchadnezzar. And today we're going to look at the story of three of these men, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego as their Babylonian names were. They had to decide to take a stand for God in the face of a crazy king and a hostile world. They had to take a decision to stand for God in the face of a crazy king and a hostile world. And in doing so, they discovered God's protection and provision and brought a huge blessing to others, uh, even those who'd hated them. We always give a, a lunchtime summary. It's not a summary given at lunchtime, as my son is fond of pointing out. It's not lunchtime yet, but it is a summary of the talk so that when you're talking over lunch with someone else, you can summarise what it is we've been talking about. And here's today's. Take a stand for God. Take a stand for God. Take a stand for God. Slightly longer form, when we stand for God, God stands with us. When we stand for God, God stands with us. We're going to think about the story of Daniel 3, but first we're going to read it. I've got my Bible here. I'm going to read along. If you've got a Bible, I do encourage you to read along with me and uh, to take it uh, and meditate on it through the week. So let's read. Daniel chapter 3. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold, 60 cubits high and 6 cubits wide. That's about 27 metres high and 2.7 metres wide, roughly. And he set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. He then summoned the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates and all the other provincial officials to come to the dedication of the image he'd set up. 
So the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates and all the other provincial officials assembled for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up and they stood before it. Then the herald loudly proclaimed, Nations and peoples of every language, this is what you are commanded to do. As soon as you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe and all kinds of music, you must fall down and worship the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. Whoever does not fall down and worship will immediately be thrown into a blazing furnace. Therefore, as soon as they heard the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp and all kinds of music, all the nations and peoples of every language fell down and worshipped the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. At this time, some astrologers came forward and denounced the Jews. They said to King Nebuchadnezzar, May the king live forever! Your majesty has issued a decree that everyone who hears the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe and all kinds of music must fall down and worship the image of gold and that whoever does not fall down and worship will be thrown into a blazing furnace. But there are some Jews whom you have set over the affairs of Babylon Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, who pay no attention to you, your majesty. They neither serve your gods nor worship the image of gold you have set up. Furious with rage, Nebuchadnezzar summoned Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego. So these men were brought before the king. And Nebuchadnezzar said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the image of gold I have set up? Now when you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe and all kinds of music, if you're ready to fall down and worship the image I made, very good. But if you do not worship it, you will be thrown immediately into a blazing furnace. Then what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego replied to him, King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we're thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it, and he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But even if he does not, we will, then we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar was furious with Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, and his attitude towards them changed. He ordered the furnace to be heated seven times hotter than usual and commanded some of the strongest soldiers in his army to tie up Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego and throw them into the blazing furnace. So these men wearing their robes, trousers, turbans and other clothes were bound and thrown into the blazing furnace. The king's command was so urgent and the fire so hot that the flames of the fire killed the soldiers who took up Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego. And these three men, firmly tied, fell into the blazing furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar leapt to his feet in amazement and asked his advisers, Weren't there three men we tied up and threw into the fire? They replied, Certainly, your majesty. He said, Look, I see four men walking around in the fire, unbound and unharmed. And the fourth looks like a son of the gods. Nebuchadnezzar then approached the opening of the blazing furnace and shouted, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out! 
Come here! So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the fire, and the satraps, prefects, governors, and royal advisers crowded around them. They saw that the fire had not harmed their bodies, nor was a hair of their heads singed. Their robes were not scorched, and there was no smell of fire on them. Then Nebuchadnezzar said, Praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, who has sent his angel and rescued his servants. They trusted in him and defied the king's command and were willing to give up their lives rather than serve or worship any god except their own god. Therefore I decree that the people of any nation or language who say anything against the god of Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego be cut into pieces and their houses be turned into piles of rubble. For no other god can save in this way. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego in the province of Babylon. This is the word of God. Well, what's going on in this story? To understand what's happening, we need to rewind slightly to uh, Daniel chapter 2. Heather preached a great message on this last week that you can find on our YouTube channel if you're interested but or you can go back and read it yourself but in short King Nebuchadnezzar has this dream and he dreams of a statue and he dreams of a statue where it's made the top is made of gold and then silver and then it goes down all the way down to the uh, bottom where uh, the feet are made of clay mixed with iron it's where we get the phrase he's got feet of clay for someone who has a weakness because In the dream, a stone rolls down a hill and smashes the statue in pieces and all of these bits of the statue are smashed to pieces. And Nebuchadnezzar was so upset by this dream that he refused to tell it to anyone but asked that his advisors tell him what he dreamed and then tell him what it meant. And obviously they couldn't do that. Right, that is a mad thing to ask. But as we shall see, King Nebuchadnezzar is, if he is anything, completely mad. And uh, so... uh, Eventually, Daniel comes along and says, don't kill all your advisors. That's a mad thing to do. Um, Let me pray about it. So he and the others get together and they pray about it. And Daniel goes back to Nebuchadnezzar and he says, this was the dream. You dreamed about this statue. And he says, this is what the dream means. Your empire is the gold bit of the statue. And then there are going to be four other empires that come after you. And each one of them is going to be destroyed by this stone. And the stone represents the kingdom of God. In other words, you think you're great, but God is greater. You've got a great empire, but God's empire is stronger. Now, you might think that Nebuchadnezzar goes away and thinks about this and thinks about the fact that Daniel had miraculously revealed this dream to him and uh, changes his ways and starts treating people a bit better, a bit less of the executing all of his advisors or throwing people into fires. But no, he has one of the all-time bad ideas and thinks, well, I'm going to build the statue and it's all going to be of gold and I'm going to make everyone worship me and declare that I am greater than God. And, or at least worship the statue I've made and therefore declare that I am greater than God. Pretty terrible idea. But Nebuchadnezzar, as I say, was a man who, if he had anything, he was enormously military success, militarily successful, won lots and lots of victories in battle and was completely mad. So he builds this enormous statue, I mean an enormous statue. They did build enormous temples in the ancient world, we, we find them. But this is a big statue. It goes up 
uh, a long way into the air, 27 metres into the air. So it's like a size of a swimming pool, if you can imagine that. It's a really big deal. A bit like uh, going and standing before Nelson's column in London. And he says to all of the officials in the province uh, where Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, the area of Babylon where Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego are, that they need to bow down and worship it. Now, it's obvious from the story that he doesn't think it's a god. He's not made an idol. But what he's saying to them is, I want you to acknowledge that what I say and who I am is more important to you and more important generally than the gods you worship. In other words, I want you to declare that the statue that I made, the empire that I have built, is bigger and stronger and more important and more central and more worthy of your affection and your respect than God is. He's directly taking on God. Why might he do that? Well, I suppose I want to use the analogy of football coaches. I use this analogy sometimes. You see football coaches, sometimes you have a very, very well-loved manager at a club and they go through a long period and eventually they leave the club and someone else comes in. And I want you to imagine for a moment that you're a player in the dressing room and the new manager walks in and he says, I want you to take all of the tactical plans that your previous uh, coach drew up and I want you to take all the pictures you have of him and I want you to take all of the medals you won under him and I want you to spit on them and burn them. And then we're all going to gather around a picture of me and we're going to kiss it. And what the, what the coach would be saying in that situation is, I want you to acknowledge that everything they told you is rubbish and that you're going to listen to me instead. If you can imagine that situation in the dressing room, that's what's going on in Babylon, except much more serious. Nebuchadnezzar is saying to these people, I want you to forget God. Don't listen to him. Now you listen to me. Well, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego refuse. And... Uh, Nebuchadnezzar is angry and as we've said before Nebuchadnezzar is a psychotic madman so he uh, decides that he's going to have them burnt alive in the furnace he used to make the golden statue. He, You need a furnace to make a golden statue, it melts the gold down you put the plates around the edge and he's kept it there in case anyone uh, wants to defy him and he's going to burn them in it. There's a kind of poetry about that I suppose. He's used the furnace to make the statue, now he's going to burn the people who refuse to worship it. And Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego are entirely calm. They don't panic, they don't get angry, they don't even defend themselves. They just calmly say, well, we're not going to do that. We're not going to worship your statue, we worship only God. And God will save us, but even if God doesn't, we want you to know, King Nebuchadnezzar, that we won't worship your statue. And so Nebuchadnezzar has them thrown into the fire. He makes it so hot that the people carrying them up to the fire end up catching on fire themselves and falling or burning so that they die and Nebuchadnezzar throws these three Jews into the fire these three men of God into the fire and when they're in there he's watching as I say psychotic madman he's trying to watch them burn alive and instead of burning alive they seem to be absolutely fine and walking around inside the fire and what's more he sees this man who he doesn't have words to describe who this man is. He says he's like a son of the gods. He's like, it's like God himself is in the fire with them. And then Nebuchadnezzar calls over and asks them to come out. And they come out. I mean, that's first humiliating reversal. He's had them thrown in there. He has to ask them to come out. He can't even go in and get them. They're beyond his power. And then they come out of the fire. They've not been harmed. Their clothes aren't even burned. And 
Uh, Nebuchadnezzar says in the second humiliating reversal, he says, well, now I acknowledge that God is the God. Who else can do this? So he set out to defy God and ends up having to acknowledge him. What does this mean, this story, for us? It's a true story, but what does it mean? Well, we've been looking at the book of Daniel under three headings. Recognise, resolve and receive. And we're going to do that again now. First, we need to recognise that the culture in which we live at times and the people in charge of us will be hostile to God. Now, it's not as obvious for us because we don't live under a psychotic king like Nebuchadnezzar or a 20th century dictator like Stalin or a Roman nutter like Nero. Nebuchadnezzar wanted them to bow down to the statue because he wanted them to accept that what he said was more important than God. He wanted them to accept that he made the rules and that whatever he said went, even if it was against God and against the way God teaches us to live. It's all about power. There are times when other people in our lives, when our society or our government, when our friends want us to do things, to say things or to behave in a way that is against what we know the Bible teaches, against what Jesus teaches. We need to recognise this. To put it another way, we need to recognise that we need to choose to stand for God. Now this can be really difficult. It can be difficult because we don't recognise when these situations come up. You're living in a world which is so seeped in different values from those of Jesus that we don't even recognise when we're being asked to do something that's different from what he teaches. That can be a risk. Or it can be tempting to go along with the crowd. I don't know if you can imagine being Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego and seeing every other person who works for Nebuchadnezzar bowing down and thinking, well, I know I shouldn't. Be tempting to go with the crowd even when we know what they are doing is wrong. Yet we have to recognise that this is a choice that we all make. All of us have to make it, whether we like it or not. Everyone had to choose how they would react to the statue. Would they bow down or not? In the end, you either bowed or you didn't. We all have to choose how we will act or speak. We all have to choose whether we will live our lives as Jesus taught us, be willing to honour him and claim him as our Lord or not. And these choices come up at every stage of life from five to ninety-five. Will we join in with bullying and name-calling in the playground when everyone else is doing it? When we start to go out with boys or girls, will we let our physical relationship go just a bit further than we know the Bible and Jesus teaches? Will we share our faith in Jesus with our friends? Will we be willing to own the fact that we go to church when all our friends are talking about what they do? We will be willing to stand up to a boss who wants us to fiddle our accounts and to defraud his boss. Will we repeat and adopt the values of the society we live in rather than those that the Bible teaches? We need to recognise that all of these situations and a thousand more are decision moments. Will we bow down to the statue or not? So first we need to recognise, then we also need to resolve Once we have recognised that our culture and our society will choose 
will force us to choose between itself and Jesus, we have to resolve to follow God. It won't happen automatically. We have to resolve to follow God. Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego had to resolve that they would not bow down to the statue. And this was hard. Everyone else was doing it. There was enormous social pressure. All of their friends were doing it. The king was a psychopathic weirdo who routinely had a large number of his advisors executed. In other words, it seemed like common sense to do it. I mean, would you define Nebuchadnezzar? Everything about this situation pressed them to deny God, to go with the crowd and to give in. And yet they resolved, they decided not to. They were men of God. Once we recognise that the world around us presents us with a choice, should we follow Jesus or not, we have to make that choice. We have to decide to follow Jesus. And this isn't a one-off thing. It's daily, each time we choose not to bow to the statues that are set up before us. So what Jesus said in Luke chapter 9 and verse 23 When he was talking to his disciples, he said, whoever wants to be my disciple, whoever wants to follow me, in other words, must deny themselves, take up their cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit their very self? It can be really hard to make that choice. It's called a cross for a reason. It means not doing something we really want to, not saying something we want to, or doing something we don't want to. It might even mean facing physical violence. I have personally faced physical violence for owning the name of Jesus in public and proclaiming him as Lord. Now, I'm fine, I'm here today, wasn't serious, but it's not easy. If you're looking for an easy life, then you should look away from Jesus. It can be hard, and yet God enables us to do it. How does he enable us to do it? He he enables us to do it by bringing to our mind what Jesus has done and recalling his promises. St John records that one of the last things Jesus said to his disciples before he died was this, and he was preparing them for exactly this situation where they'd have to face down people who were physically hurting them and commanding them to stop teaching about Jesus. He said this, this is John 16 and verse 33. I've told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome this world. We can take heart because we look at Jesus and we see him really living, really dying and really rising to life again. The Christian faith isn't blind faith. These things really happened. You can go and check them out. When we do that, we take heart because we know that whatever we face in this world, Jesus has overcome it. Later, St. John would apply this to the people in his church and encourage them with these words when they were facing uh, violence and trouble and opposition for their faith in Jesus. He said, you, dear children, are from God and have overcome them because the one who is in you is greater than than the one who is in the world. 1 John 4 and verse 4. Resolving to follow Jesus, to listen to him and do what's right, may be hard. 
It may cost us dearly. It looked as if it would cost Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego their lives. But we know someone who's overcome death. We believe there's hope even for those who die because Jesus died and was raised from the dead. And so we are able to resolve, however hesitatingly, however painfully, to follow him. Ultimately, this is what faith is. It isn't an unwavering certainty. Still less is it a belief that never doubts or questions. Everyone doubts and questions at some point, from Richard Dawkins to the Pope. If you think I'm wrong, read the stories of Elijah in the Old Testament, or Peter or John the Baptist and Thomas in the New. Faith is a choice based upon evidence to trust Jesus and follow him because of what he has done and who he is. Faith is an unwavering certainty that never flickers or fades. It's a choice to trust Jesus because of what he has done and who he is. So they recognised the situation they were in. They resolved to follow Jesus and finally they received from God. What did they receive? Well, they received God's peace. Look at verses 16 and 17 and see how calm and collected Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego are. King Nebuchadnezzar, they said, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we're thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it and he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you set up. They are confronted with this crazy, murderous king who's about to have them burned alive in the fire he used to make a massive golden statue. Yet they are calm, they are respectful, they are dignified, they are brave. No one would naturally behave like that. When we resolve to follow Jesus, his spirit comes and makes us able to do so without fear and with peace. It's his peace that comes to us when we choose to follow him. The same spirit who fills us with God's love fills us with his peace. As St John puts it, he casts out fear. 1 John 4 verse 18. When we stand for God, God stands with us. Again, they receive the words they should say. Jesus promises that when we stand for God, the Spirit will teach us what we should say. This is uh, from Luke 12, verse 11. When you're brought before synagogues, rulers and authorities, do not worry about how you'll defend yourselves or what you'll say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you at that time what to say. When we stand for God, God stands with us. Finally, they receive God's deliverance. Jesus is with them in the fire and he saves their lives. They go to a place of death and they meet Jesus and he saves them. Now this isn't a promise that we'll always be saved from harm. Sometimes we have the privilege, the blessing of being counted among those who are dying today and have died for the kingdom of God. But hear me say this, even if we do die, Jesus will meet us there and bring us to new life. When we stand for God, God stands with us. So what then should we do in response? Well, let's look at our three R's. Recognise. We have to make a choice. You might be thinking about this for the first time. Your parents cannot make the choice for you 
to follow Jesus. You have to make that choice for yourself. Your culture can't make the choice for you to follow Jesus. You have to make that choice yourself. You have to choose. We need to see that following Jesus is a choice and we have to make it. We have to see that throughout our lives, we make choices. Each time we turn the TV on, what will we watch? What will not? What won't we watch? Each time we go into the playground, how will we behave to the uh, kid in the school everyone's picking on? Each time we go into work, will we honour our boss? Each time we uh, are tempted to be unfaithful to our partner, will we be unfaithful? Each time, each time, each time, we have to recognise that we are making choices. The world around us isn't neutral. The things we do, the things we take part in or watch shape us. They're choices about whether we follow Jesus or not. And if you've never made that first choice to follow Jesus, then today is the day. God's word to you is the same as it has been since Jesus was alive, which is repent and be baptised. As St Peter said when he was preaching after Jesus had died and risen again, if you, rep- if you repent, if you turn away from what you've done wrong, you acknowledge you've made bad choices and you choose to follow Jesus and you are baptised, you will receive God's spirit within you. He will come and give you forgiveness and a new start. And it, it, that goes on through the rest of our lives. Every time we recognise we've made a wrong choice, we need to say we're sorry and ask for forgiveness. As we do, that sin is removed and forgiven and cast away from us. Then we need to resolve to follow Jesus. We might be living in a way that displeases God. What do we have to say no to? It's a good question to ask ourselves. What do we have to say no to that we're doing at the moment? What do we need to start saying yes to? You can get encouragement and faith for this process by being familiar with Christian history, get into the facts of the resurrection. Know that Jesus died, really did die, really did live, really did rise again. You can go to a website where there are professional philosophers and historians and apologists who've dug into these things. World-class minds. Places like reasonablefaith.org. You can find the link in the show notes below. Where you can see and read investigations into the resurrection of Jesus that present the compelling, the overwhelming evidence for it. Read the, read the stories of what God has done in the lives of men and women throughout the church. Dig deep into the lives of those who've died for Christ. Read contemporary stories. Here are two to start you off. If you've got some time for reading over this lockdown period, you might have, then try reading these two. The, the one problem with these books is that you won't be able to put them down once you've started them. This is The Cross and the Switchblade by David Wilkerson. And this is Chasing the Dragon by Jackie Pullinger. You can see that mine are well flagged and well thumped. Jackie actually comes and preaches in churches near here. So you can go and meet her and speak to her about her experiences after you've read the book. Amazing stories of what God has done, setting men and women free and saving people's lives. Don't worry about doubts. There will be times where you're less certain about your faith than you would be otherwise. Don't panic. Bring them to God and then decide to move forward and to trust Jesus. And then finally, receive. Make time to dwell in God's presence and receive his peace. Be brave. Say a word to the boys and to the men who are watching. This applies to girls and to women as well. But I think boys and men struggle to know what God wants for them, what their identity is in this world. And I want to say to you, you need to learn to man up. Christianity is not a faith, not a life for those who are not willing to take risks. 
You need to be men, become men of courage, become men of bravery, become men of God who are willing to stand up for their faith, for their families. You don't have to be macho. You don't have to dress in a certain way or speak in a certain way. But you do have to be willing to stand for God and find that God stands with you. And then finally, receive the Holy Spirit. Ask God to fill you with his Holy Spirit and pray. We're going to sing some more songs in a moment of worship, so do stay with us. When we stand for God, God stands with us. So stand for God.